0: Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Uh, a couple of housekeeping items. Uh, those of you on IFAST University, uh, we have a call today, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please join us for that. If you're not on IFAST University, go to ifasuniversity.com. Get yourself signed up and join us for that conference call today at 1 p.m. Today is, uh, this week is uh, the Intensive 17 week. Um, so we're going to get ready to dig into that starting on Thursday. Um, so I might as well announce Intensive 18. That's going to be July uh, 28th through the 31st. July 28th through the 31st. Um, so hold those dates. If you're not on the uh, mentorship list, please go to any blog post on BillHartmanPT.com. Get yourself signed up so you can be the first to be notified when applications open for the Intensive eighteen, Remember, only eight people get to come um, at a time, and so we have to use an application process to do so. Please get signed up. Again, com. Any blog post um, at the very end, you can sign up for the mentorship list. Okay, digging into today's Q&A, this is with Alex. Alex asked a great uh, foundational question talking about how the narrow ISAs move their center of gravity through space. And the thing that we wanna recognize again, about narrows is because of their physical structure, because of their bias towards this this ER representation of the pelvis, they're gonna move forward on a more vertical helical angle. So that left side is gonna come forward to manage some of the internal forces that we're always dealing with. And then they're just going to move towards available space, which is typically that way. And so this discussion with Alex covers how that shape change actually occurs to allow this movement to occur. And so this is a great foundational question. So thank you, Alex, for asking. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Please put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. Include your question in the email. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Monday, and I'll see you tomorrow.
1: So um, I was thinking about the path of the narrow case, You get their um, the right foot, which is four on the left, and then they move left to right.
0: Sorry, say it one more time, please.
1: So an arrow moves four and okay. the left first and then they go left to right. Gotcha. Um, okay, no, I understand. I, yeah, I was just wondering where in that pathway they start to get right posterior compression. I'm assuming at some point it's there to help them not fall over off their right foot. Um, but I'm not sure on what part it shows up.
0: As soon as they start moving forward, they're gonna they're gonna start pushing back.
1: Right um right i say anterior i meant posterior
0: right posterior yeah okay so um so they go they go forward on the left and as they're moving this way to the right okay um they're also going forward Mm -hmm. right okay um and so as they as they go forward they're going to push back and so you you have this is happening as they move to the right you understand that, correct? Yeah. Okay. So where's your question? Like, at what point does that happen? Yeah. I... As soon as they start, as soon as they start moving from left to right. Okay. It has to. It has to because the the space is going to have to close. Because if the space was open, if the space was open, they wouldn't. They wouldn't have to move any farther. They would already be expanded. Right. They would be taking up that space.
1: Maybe I don't fully understand this. So can you say that again, but in a different way?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: so if if they're just forward on the left, yeah. just forward on the left, okay? They, they don't have the, the anterior-posterior compressive strategy on the right side.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So so they still have A to P, right? Which means that they didn't push farther to the right. So if I squeeze, so if I squeeze you on the left first, Mm -hmm. okay, that creates expansion relative to the left side, more expansion on the right. But it's A to P expansion on the right side, okay, not lateral expansion on the right side. Right. Okay, so, but if I squeeze the left side first, that creates a bias of volume to the right. I got AP expansion, but now I got to push, I got it. my center of gravity is still going to push forward, which means I'm going to get eight more AP expansion on the, on the right side. Okay. So I squeeze the left, bias the expansion to the right. Now I'm squeezing A to P on the right, The left is already squeezed, so I can't go back that way. As I squeeze A to P, it's gonna move from left to right across the pelvis, and it's gonna move me in the right to the the right.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: Take a water balloon, look down upon it from the superior view, squeeze the left side, and you will see that it creates a round bulge to the right hold on to that squeeze and then gradually squeeze across the balloon and the bulge of the balloon stays to the right. And that's the direction that I will move. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening.
1: Okay. Um, that makes sense. So something else that I see, I feel like a lot of times is with, with narrows, they'll go, they'll go forward and they'll get like the compensatory rotation from right to left. Um, I don't know. So, hang on. I feel like a lot of times it'll create an IR compensatory force. Oh,
0: well, if they they will absolutely they will,
1: which okay. involves some type of series of twists from the right side going down.
0: Okay, so it's IR going down right okay. mm-hmm. all right where is straight ahead
1: in that situation
0: yeah is it i don't know where straight ahead is sometimes okay so i push you forward on the left yeah and then i start to push you forward on the right mhm it may look like you're turning left because you're compressing that side relative to some imaginary starting point. You're not really twisting back to the left. You're just going, they they're they're shifting forward here as they go forward and to the so they're going to the to the right, predominantly to the right. Mm -hmm. That right side is pushing forward. Okay. So everything's moving to the same place. Mm -hmm. So if this side was forward and this side was back initially, and as you go to the left, this side goes forward, it looks like you're turning this way. Yeah. So you need a point of reference. yeah yeah, yeah. you see what i'm getting at yeah it's not it's not so they're not doing this right the other side's just sort of catching up to the to the initial position relative to where it started
1: that's right so in that situation um you need if you have enough of that compensatory ir for production on the right side does it create issues when you try and go right to left. And so they'll just sink straight into that compensatory strategy and they won't get the proper turn.
0: Okay, so so this is where the, the cues come into play to make sure that you go in the appropriate direction, right? This is why we talk about, about um, the, the foot cues so much when you're using a like, a like a grounded representation. So the foot's on the ground, foot's supported somewhere as a representation of the ground. This is why the cues become so important, is to make sure that you do go in the appropriate direction. So if I want to go right to left in a narrow ISA, the medial foot cues become essential because it will assure me that I'm going right to left. If I didn't capture a heel, um, you're going forward because you're still in a late representation.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, for sure. If you cannot capture those quick cues, that's when you might need to break out the manual skills, pretty much, or, or do some type of like bone untwisting.
0: Yeah, you need you need you need either some activity that's going to allow you to capture them without a compensatory strategy, or you'd need like a manual uh, application. So you're either going to change muscle orientation, or you're going to change uh, joint position mm-hmm. manually, okay, to allow them to capture the uh the desired contact cool. all right because it's ultimately the de- it's ultimately the contact that's going to give you the muscle activity that you want right from a coordinative standpoint like from, from their output standpoint like we we achieve things passively to give them good morning happy tuesday i have neurocoffee coffee in hand and it is perfect All right, well, uh, quick reminder, uh, once again, the Intensive 18 is July 28th through the 31st. If you would like to uh, attend, you need to apply. Um, That's gonna be done through the mentorship list first. So if you're not on the mentorship list, go to BillHartmanPT.com, go to the bottom of any blog, enter your email onto the mentorship list. You'll be first notified so you can apply for the Intensive 18. Digging into today's Q&A, This is with Alex. Alex asked a great question uh, in regards to the influence of a distal position affecting the axial skeleton or the axial skeleton affecting the distal position. Um, The reason that we can talk about both is because what we're talking about is the direction of the flow of energy so that's why one of the reasons why we distinguish between an early and late representation of er because they're not the same because the energy is moving in a different direction so for instance if we're stepping into an, an early representation of propulsion that is the acceptance of energy um, that we're going to use and turn it around and produce our propulsive Uh, forces using that energy on the backside in late propulsion. So we do have influences that that can affect how the axial skeleton is going to behave and then we have positions and such that they're going to Produce a shape in the axial skeleton that is going to produce a peripheral or distal influence as well. So, Alex, great question. Thank you so much for asking that. If you would like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com. Askbillhartman at gmail.com. Please put 15 minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. Please include your question in the email. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday, and I will see you tomorrow.
1: Just I'll just start over. So I'm wondering how a distal joint position yes. affects the ability of the axial skeleton to gain inhalation, for example. Okay. Um, and I think it might be a relatively foundational question. Yep. Um, but, but if you, for example, if you have <laughs> twi- a twisted elbow position. Yes. Um, if you don't untwist it, does that Prevent you sometimes from acquiring the ER the IR that you need proximally. Yes. And so,
0: can I can I show you like an exaggeration? Can I use a knee? Can I use a knee as a representation because it'll be a little bit easier for you to feel? Yeah. Okay. So, um, do do you mind standing? No. Okay. So we're gonna create a we're gonna create an exaggeration to make a point. Okay.
1: You want to see my knees?
0: No, it's okay. We'll be able to see it in the rest of you from the waist up. So, um, what I want you to do is I want you to, uh, just get on like your right first met head and big toe. Okay. And then I want you to twist your, your leg inward to the maximum that you can possibly go. It's going to move your whole body and that's perfectly fine. Cool. Awesome. Okay. Um, Did you anteriorly orient, or did you fall back towards your heel?
1: Anteriorly orient.
0: Awesome. Okay. Now, so try to square your shoulders to the to the camera with your pelvis twisted in that way. There you go. Awesome. Okay. Now, without changing your pelvis or your extremity orientation, I want you to posteriorly orient your pelvis. Pretty tough. Yeah. So there you go. It's like it's like that's literally what kind of what we're talking about here is that you've got a you've got an extremity orientation and potential adaptations. So if you get enough, if you get enough bony torsion, it's gonna it's gonna literally fix your hand in space, which means that I will not have the same capacity proximally. It goes both directions. So this is one of the reasons why I talk about the difference between the early and the late representations. It's like I got ER going one way, I got IR going the other way right? So that means that a distal a distal uh, adaptation is going to affect proximal and proximal is going to affect distal, yeah. right? So it's your job, it's your job to identify where these people are in space and then restore their capacity to move these representations proximal to distal, distal to proximal.
1: Yeah, I, I think something obviously makes a lot of sense. It's- for whatever reason, not something that I realized until recently, um, and probably part of the reason why I've struggled with a couple things, but I've been playing around with it more, and it, it obviously helped. Yeah. Um, my question, another question is why specifically does it limit it? I mean, so obviously it affects your ability to change the center of math. Yes. Um,
0: okay, there's one. Keep going.
1: I would assume it affects like variable muscle tension in a way that makes it hard to keep joint position. I'm also wondering if there's some sort of like fluid flow change that it, it does not allow. You want me to try and keep going? Um, I would imagine it affects proprioceptive.
0: Well, you have okay. a limit, so, so you have a limited representation in the nervous system, right?
1: Now, now I'm running out of things.
0: Okay. Um, um, Where's my storage and release of energy, my friend? Okay. So what's not affected? (laughs) Right. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, it's like big picture. It's like, Oh, this is a cascade of events here. Right. Yeah. if If I can't, if i can't change joint position because i have i have i have a muscle orientation that doesn't allow the fluid shift it doesn't tune the connective tissues appropriately i only feel certain things and so i don't know what i don't know what a heel feels like anymore to have on the ground because if i felt a heel i would actually be able to change my, my my uh uh muscle orientation therefore i would get a joint position change which would again give me more proprioceptive information so i would actually be able to feel where i was in space guess what you do is for for a living there boss this is what you do for a living right
1: yeah yeah right
0: so nothing is separate nothing is separate right it's all at the same time just that in the the heterarchy of of representations right one might be a little bit more influential than something else
1: yeah i mean because i've you get like an early representation of the pelvis, you also need like a similar early representation of the knee. Yes, um, <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, it's, obviously. It, um,
0: it seems that way, doesn't it? it seems sometimes, it's when not, you, sometimes it's not so obvious, but but, yeah. but so it just seems like that's what it should be, right?
1: I mean, think my road there might've been a little bit long, but um, I guess once you, you realize it, it helps.
0: Yeah. Well, again, so so, you know, anytime we're talking about doing table tests or 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 evaluating a complex movement, it's like all we're trying to do is identify is like what strategy are they using? And then is there something that's interfering with with the desired outcome? And it's like, okay, so here's where you are here's where we want you to be, and let's just reverse engineer it. So now we're, we're having the same conversation that we've had before. It's like, oh, as so I lay you on the table. Oh, that's a late representation. You're, you're ER biased. Okay, you're inhalation biased. If we're answering Kevin's question again, it's like, I just got to move you into a, a space where <clears> I can alter the motor output so I can tune the connective tissues appropriately, so I can absorb and release energy, so I can change joint position, so I can create the fluid shifts and the shape changes that allow me to move through space. Yeah. It's not separate,
1: right?
0: Yeah. And again, it's like sometimes, sometimes when you learn things, it's easier to learn things in chunks, which is what school does, right? But then they forget to bring it back to, oh, by the way, all of this is happening at the same time. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neurocoffee in hand and it is. Perfect. All right. Today is Wednesday. That means that tomorrow's Thursday. As usual, 6 a.m. tomorrow morning, the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Um, Grab a cup of coffee. Please join us. Great Q&A, great people. These calls have been uh, getting better and better. They're always fantastic, but they're they're getting deeper and deeper um, as, as people are getting more comfortable with my model as a representation of how we do things. So thank you all for those of you that have been joining us on a regular basis. And then for those of you that will join us in the future, um, looking forward to uh, talking to you. Quick reminder, the Intensive 18, uh, the dates are July 28th through the 31st. So please save those dates. I'll be announcing the application opening very soon. we got to get through the Intensive 17, which starts tomorrow and so we'll take care of that first and then we will be looking forward to the applications coming in for the intensive 18. digging into today's q a this is from kevin kevin has a great foundational question Um, his question was initially about what do we mean by an inhalation bias and this led us to the concept of how things are are superimposed and then how orientations exist and so when we talk about superimpositions um, ER and IR are, are typically represented as separate entities from some imaginary zero point. When the reality is, is that both are, are existing at the same time, much like inhalation exhalation, you are you are biased in one direction, but both are pre-existing. It's a tough concept to grasp uh, initially because. The representation has always been based on dead people, and dead people do have a potential zero point because they don't move. Um, But when you move through space dynamically, um, all of the zeros disappear, and then all we have is superimpositions of ERs and IRs, um, which is why I I think uh, my model is a lot closer to uh, reality than, than our dead guy representations. So Kevin asked a really good question. And if you have questions about about how these things are superimposed or how ER orientation and IR orientation exist, um, this will be helpful for you. So, again, thank you, Kevin. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Please put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it and include your question in the email. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Wednesday. I will see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Have a great day.
2: So I have a a quick question, which is about a a bias towards an inhalation strategy, which is when you say you're biased towards a strategy, for example, does that mean you can't move further into that direction? So if somebody was biased towards inhalation, they actually can't inhale further because they've already essentially used a part of their inhalation or they're in the opposite direction and they have a huge ability to inhale? Okay. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. Yes, I'm with you. Yeah. But I'm gonna I'm gonna make you do a demonstration. Is that okay? So you so you'll understand. Sure. You'll understand. Okay.
2: So here's hey, what I'm gonna my do. Headphones off.
0: Okay. Right. Just make sure you can hear me. Okay. Okay. I
2: can hear you now.
0: Okay. Awesome. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a, a maximum exhale for me to get all of your air out for a sec and then I want you to breathe in exactly 50%. Okay? Yeah. It's not gonna be perfect, it's okay. I'm just making a point. Okay, so you exhaled all your air out, you breathed in, you're now 50% empty, 50% full, fair fair enough? Okay, yeah. are, you inhaled, are you inhaled or exhaled?
2: Neither, yes.
0: Well, you're oh, both,
2: God, just- you're both.
0: Okay, so inhalation and exhalation are always happening at the same time, okay? So you're either partially full, partially empty, but there's always air in you, and there's always a a deficit of air. Fair enough? Okay. Yeah. So you always inhaled and exhaled. But now, if I say blow out all your air and breathe in 75% of your lung capacity, you are now biased towards an inhale. Okay. does that make sense? Yes. So whenever I say a bias, what that means is that both representations are there. You're showing more of one than the other. You're a biased toward something. So somebody that is biased towards the inhalation right, as a, a behavioral strategy that, that keeps them a little bit more um, biased towards that inhaled representation, they're going to be more ER biased, okay, by structure. So like a narrow ISA has a structure that biases them towards more of an ER representation. So their, their breathing bias is going to be a, a lower pressure strategy, which is biased towards an inhale. So their behavior
2: is, is towards an inhale okay um so yeah i i basically found in my own experience that as i've gotten older i've lost my ability to inhale yep. as i've done excessive power lifting yes and lost my ability to internally rotate. I'm very externally rotated driven. Okay. And I have no ability to inhale right now. I find that because I do a lot of yoga and I find that when we need to take deep inhales, I have no ability to inhale.
0: Correct. Correct. Okay. So, um, we've got a few people that have lifted heavy things on the call and they can attest to this is that as you get better at lifting heavy things, you get better at squeezing yourself. Okay. So these are the superficial strategies that we talk about that create the anterior posterior compression. Okay. So if I squeeze you front to back, your socket orientation, so shoulders and hips, becomes oriented into external rotation. So they face sideways more so than they used to. And so that biases you into a position of ER. So this is not relative motion ER, as we would want throughout the pelvis and the thorax. This is just an orientation. So it's just a socket position that's biasing this, okay? Because of the anterior compressive strategies that you've used, and and evolve through lifting heavy things you now compress the front side of your body and that takes away your internal rotations so you're biased into er orientation and then you lose your relative motion internal rotation anterior compression and then any an, any internal rotation that you do have is going to be an orientation towards the ground so this is people with that would typically have a an anti-orientation to the pelvis or an anti-orientation to the thorax okay does that make sense?
2: Yes, that makes sense, thank you.
0: Yeah, it's the superficial stuff that takes it away. So so you could take the narrowest of narrows that should have like crazy external rotation bias, squeeze them front to back and you can take away their motions. Cool? Thank you. You're welcome, Yes, sir. thank you. Good morning, happy. Thursday, I have NeuroCoffee coffee in hand, and it
3: is perfect. Uh, in university where I go, we mm-hmm. are getting taught these uh, traditional methods of uh, stretching and uh, strengthening and other methods. And recently, uh, we uh, we got into the theme of uh, <coughs> levers, like uh, huh? body levers, yeah. And I remember. <coughs> I think in one of your videos, uh, you said that only dead guys have levers. Yeah, so can you expand on that a little bit?
0: Only dead guys have levers. Yeah. Okay, sorry. That's an old, that's like a dad joke. Um, Okay, so what constitutes a lever. Um, so what 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 do you have to have?
3: <clears throat> well, you have to have like a point of movement, I guess. And um... so you need a
0: <clears throat> you need a stick and a fulcrum, right?
3: I guess that's what you call it. Yeah. So you need a fulcrum.
0: That's it's. If you don't have a fulcrum, you don't have a lever.
3: Okay. can you explain the fulcrum part
0: yeah so i got a rock that i want to move yeah. okay yeah. i take my stick i jam it underneath the rock there's got to be another rock that i pull the stick down on that pops yeah. this, the rock up okay yeah so if you're on a teeter-totter do they do they have teeter-totters at the playground yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Awesome. so the 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 fixed point in the middle is the fulcrum
3: okay, okay? good gotcha.
0: all right so you got to have a fulcrum so that's the rule otherwise mm-hmm. it's not a lever okay yep. <clears throat> that means that my stick that i'm using as my lever has to touch and put pressure on the fulcrum.
3: okay yep.
0: that never happens in a in a living human being with uh, normal healthy joints bones don't touch if bones don't touch You cannot have a lever. Okay. The perception is that bones do touch when we move and they don't, because if they did, there would be a tremendous amount of heat that would have to be released with movement. That heat and pressure would destroy the cartilage in the bones very quickly. Okay. Um, There is also arguably the most extreme amount of pain associated with such a thing. Having experienced it firsthand. So so if you you have bony contact between two bones as the joint moves, it hurts a lot, okay? So you don't ever want that. There's always a space. There's always a fluid space in a joint that, like that synovial joints, okay? Um, the, the synovial fluid, okay, is always between the bones. And there's 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 decent evidence for this, actually. Um, I wanna say it's a Japanese study that, that it was, and it was done in 1980 and they took, um, um fresh cadaver joints like the joints they just took them like like took a hip joint cut it out of the of the cadaver and tried to approximate the bones keeping the joint intact and they could not make them touch okay and there's several mechanisms that are in play to prevent them from touching um and so if they don't touch, there's no fulcrum. If there's no fulcrum, then there's no lever. If there's no levers, then you're probably alive and healthy.
3: Um, so why do they call them levers, like in the tradition? Because they use dead guys as an example. Okay, that makes sense.
0: Because <laughs> they, so the, here's the thing. <clears throat> um, have you ever seen a cadaver? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, h- how well do they walk? Not at all. Not at all. They roll over.
3: If you push them over, I guess.
0: <laughs> Do they breathe? No. Nope. No. Nope. Are they dry? Yes. Yes. Every once in a while you get an intact you get an intact joint and you can you can pop it. But, uh, but yeah, generally speaking, they, they, they are not they are not living human beings and therefore they have different rules right? Because they don't move. They're, they're essentially doing nothing. They're just hanging out. And, but we can use them as a representation to find stuff, which is really interesting. We can get some relationships in regards to how things might move. But the reality is, is that they're not human. They're dead. And therefore they have different rules, right? And so they take stuff apart and they look at the dry representations and they go, look, it's a class two lever. Right? Yep. And then they go, well, that makes total sense because if you look at the way that it moves through respect, what, what's the what's uh the elbow? Is that is that a class three?
3: Is that a- <laughs> I don't yeah. learn. Those yeah, I think I, I think
0: like the ankle is supposed to be like a class two.
3: Yeah. So it has to
0: do with the it has to do with the with the moment arm and the, the position of the fulcrum and then the position of the load, right? Yep. Yeah. Doesn't work that way. Okay. Here's here's the thing. Don't try to start this argument in school. Okay? Because well, you won't win. You won't win. Yep. Because if you try to answer this on correctly on the test at school, you'll get the answer wrong. Yep. Okay? Let them have their way. Understand? Understand their rules that they want you to learn, and then learn reality. That makes you much stronger because now you can argue favorably for reality, right? With a legitimate argument versus just going, "Oh, but it's not levers. And then they'll say, "Well, how can you say that?" You go, "Well, because bones don't touch." And you say, "Well, what? How, how, where's your evidence for this?" You go, "1980 Japanese study, blah 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 blah." Bill said, "Don't and don't." <laughs> Don't use me as a reference. <laughs> Please don't use me. I really don't want that phone call.
4: It's my understanding of how we learn movement and its relationship to correcting uh, places that we're in. So I know that we have what we call, not really normal, but our, 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 like I say, a normal YI, I say, an endgame. There's a whole radiant that we go through our old gambit, right? Of change. Yeah. My understanding of learning movement is let's let's take for example if I'm going to learn to ride a bike, is that my upper motor neurons and my lower motor neurons, my upper no- motor neurons in my brain, my lower motor neurons in my spine work together to create that pattern. Once it's created our central pattern generator neurons in our in our spine and our lower no- motor neurons work together to repeat that motion over and over again. Okay. Right. So we create a pattern. Just like we would for to, for me in my in my in my mind to anything else I do if I'm squatting, there's a pattern. Over time that kind of changes because of the positions we get in, right? As we get closer and closer towards end game. Right. And my question here is when we start to make corrections back, are those neurons involved in that change? And this is why it takes so long to make those changes to come back. And every, everything that we try, whether we're, in my case, like sl- sled dragging to gain more internal rotation, it always seems to be temporary, even without any, without any true interference. Uh-huh. I mean, I know there's always going to be some type of interference, uh-huh. but I, I am up to school. <clears throat> the 23-1 rule, right? Where I know that there's one hour that I'm in the gym every day, 23 other hours in my day. Mm-hmm. I try to maintain those that integrity through the other 23 hours with the movements that I do. Mm-hmm. So I'm just kind of wondering how that all works together in your model. If that makes well, sense.
0: So some of this is just the straight up biology you've got you've got other adaptations that are influences right so you've got a structural bias that is going to create a limit on what is possible okay and then you have other influences that that alter those things that that are changeable so um i use dirty words because this this is how it's worded in the literature okay so this is not me saying this out loud. Okay, because I'm going to get a little sick to my stomach. There are structural constraints. That's what you're made of. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then there are functional constraints. And they change to different degrees and at different rates. Okay. So a uh, functional constraint changes very, very quickly. In, In some cases, instantaneously. Case in point. You're walking through the house. Somebody jumps out from behind the corner and goes, ah, and you go, ah, right? And then your heart is immediately going really, really fast. You might break a sweat. You might react and punch somebody in the face by accident, right? Um, So that was an instantaneous physiological change. Okay. Those are the ones we mess with a lot because they are changeable that quickly. And so so that's as, as fast as electricity can go kind of a thing. Right. So those are the things that we see that that like when we alter muscle position, that's that's can be very quick. OK, joint position can be very quick. Um, sensory influences can be very, very quick. Structural constraints can take a very long time or not change because there's a limit to. How much they can change and so you have to look at the influences of both so the the neurologic phenomenon that you're um talking about okay um is relatively and i also say relatively relatively fast changing so um if you were to try to learn to play piano do you play piano no okay um I was forced at gunpoint to take piano lessons when I was eight. So, um, but, uh, when, w- when, you take piano lessons, you're, you don't know how to play piano day one, you just don't know anything. And then you learn something and then you learn something else and it's additive. Right. And so over time you learn to p- play the piano and it, it goes from a, a state where you are very, very conscious in what you're trying to do to, a, to a point where it's very, very unconscious. So, um, <clears throat> the late great Eddie Van Halen playing a guitar solo was not thinking right? Um, Because of the experiences that he had, the learning that took place, and then where in the brain, all of this stuff takes place. It's kind of like, you don't think to drive a car anymore, do you? No. Right? The car is just, the the car becomes a physical extension of you, actually, Mm -hmm. right? It is is literally part of you, Um, which is why you don't have to think about it, because it's in a different part of your brain than when you learned it, because when you first learned to drive a car, uh, there's you know, you got to pay attention to the road. You got to put your hands at 10 or two. You got two pedals to deal with. You got cars coming at you. You got to read street signs and all this kind of stuff. And now you're like driving with your knee, talk, talking illegally on your cell phone, eating a sandwich and adjusting the radio with your elbow, you know, because it's just in a totally different place. And so again, it's like those kind of things change relatively quickly. Structural constraints don't, right? And, and <clears throat> your archetype has a limit as to what is possible. And then anything that you've superimposed to a significant degree that has promoted a significant adaptation can can shift adaptations in in one direction to such a degree that they're not changeable anymore. Or they only go in one direction, which would be degenerative, which is why you see like degenerative changes in spines and things like that. Arthritis in knees, right? so, when, when you talk about like, okay, I make these immediate changes, but they don't stick, it's like, okay, cool. So, you're influencing the so called functional constraints consistently. That's important because mm-hmm. it's going to keep the adaptations from going so far in one direction and may protect you or extend the duration of what you're capable of doing. But you picked up heavy things for how many years now? 45. Okay. So you've changed some stuff, mm-hmm. right? In a, in a relatively permanent or permanent way. And so that's like, you, you, you made a couple of decisions, that's where you're gonna be. And then you make the, the best of the scenario that you have left. Um, training and stress and other influences are always going to take away things. Because the goal is to simplify under those circumstances. So, <clears throat> the way that I tell, them, I, I like we, we get athletes and stuff that come in, and, and like, I'll use a baseball pitcher because it's a really easy example. <clears throat> so, we encourage our, our pitchers to recapture as much of their movement as they can. They warm up, they perform, and that performance will take away movement because that's what's supposed to happen okay as you up the intensity of effort as you accumulate fatigue everything's going to try to simplify itself energy systems become m- more simple um, or or more if uh, you try to bias it towards it more efficient if you can but depending on the type of activity, like pitching is not going to let you get, get to aerobic but they're using, some, they're using the simple end of, of energy production. They're gonna lose ranges of motion progressively based on the fatigue, um, based on the degree of effort. And so <clears throat> like a pitcher comes in some one day, he pitches three, in, three great innings and then the fourth inning he starts to suck, they take him out. The next game he comes out and he pitches like six or seven great innings It's because he just didn't drop off as quickly as he did before for whatever reason it may be, right? And those are those functional constraints that are changing. Then we encourage them to recapture their movement as quickly as possible. So they don't spend as much time in the state where they had the losses of of capabilities, of movement capabilities. Because we want them to consistently learn to recapture that so they always start in a good position and then recover in a good position because we know that performance is always gonna take it away. Because if I don't recover it after I lose it, And I start from a deficit, my deficit comes much faster than it did before, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you think about the volume of influence, okay, so I'm going to use you as an example, not picking on you, just using you as an example. So as a a guy that picked up heavy things for many, many years, my guess is that the the strongest emphasis was not on acquiring
4: mobility. No, it, it wasn't.
0: Well, and it, Nor should it be under the circumstance because it would become interference at some point. Like if you want to, if you want to squat eight, you better not be able to move very much because all of that extraneous movement contributes to energy output that I have to control. So as I lose move, movement, as I lift heavy things, I actually become more efficient in the lift because I can, I can, I can um, produce more force per unit of movement because I don't have to control so much right now when the goal changes because it's later on you realize that okay even superheroes need to back off after a while right and you want to reacquire stuff okay what's the what's going to be the time investment to change the structural constraints that you can change to get them to do the things that you want to do obviously you're influencing the fast changing stuff effectively based on your description which is good but to change a structural constraint, now you got to start thinking like, "Oh, what's your time investment? What's the longest workout? Like when you were at your best as a power lifter, what's the longest workout you, you did?"
4: No, oh, it could be two to three hours.
0: Okay, awesome. When was the last time you contributed two or three hours to improving the mobility of your ribcage? <laughs> yeah. Well. Okay. Yeah. Do you do you do you do you see my point? Right. It's like it's like. People are willing to to invest like ridiculous amounts of time in something like a marathon runner. Okay. Will, they'll go out and they'll run 20, right? Which, you know, just take a car. It's faster, but, but they, but as part of their training, like, like they will run 20 miles in a row. Right. And, but they, and, and they won't give it a second thought because that's the contributor to the performance without the understanding that, oh, I need to invest a a certain amount of time in to offset the negative consequences of me running 20 months. And that might be a lot more time than they think. So because of the fast changing constraints that we, that we deal with, some people think that they only need to invest like five or six minutes. And and then that's enough because, because they recapture something, go, okay, I'm good. When the reality is, it's like, Oh, you've got these underlying structural adaptations That are going to prevent you from hanging on to those changes longer than than you want. What are you willing to invest in them? And I have this conversation a lot with with a lot of people because they go, well, you know, sometimes I do well, sometimes I don't. It's like, well, okay, well, what are you willing to invest? It's like, how fast, they go, how fast can I, how fast can I feel better? How fast can I get back to the gym? It's like, what are you willing to invest, right? Would you take that three hours of, of training, right? And, and change the entire focus of it to be the most horrible miserable boring type of activity that you can imagine to recapture so, 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 yeah. You, yeah. you know yeah. do you know the lazy rolling thing that I yeah, talked yeah. about yeah. okay do that for three hours it's ridiculous to think that it is ridiculous to think that and I'm not saying do, I'm not saying do that right. but I'm just saying it's like imagine trying to do that right so it's like picking up heavy things feels great it's ego satisfying it's awesome it makes you look great it makes you superhuman strong right and so you're willing to do that now roll around on the ground for three hours to to capture 10 degrees of hip rotation you know it's like are you willing to do that right so so, so I, guess, I like where your head is in regards to to the way you're looking at this thing, but but again, you just have to look at from the much broader perspective of what is changeable, and then I guess, what's the investment?
4: For me, what I've always thought is that, and I've always said is that if someone's never squatted before, within three to five hundred reps, I can have them squatting pretty well. Yeah. If someone comes to me that with really bad technique, let's say, or bad movement patterns it's gonna take me five to 7,000 to correct it. Maybe. Providing there's not a lot of interference. I mean, realize it's there's always variables, but just in general, right? So I've taken the approach for the last year of spending, I still spend two to three hours every day in the gym, but very very little heavy loaded movement. Most of it's, you know, like I'll spend three hours today out there um, uh, pulling, you know, pulling light sleds, doing uh, basically mobility and rehab work and that's because i got the time why not right yeah. and i i can see where i've definitely made lots of strides right and i guess i just want to make sure that i'm thinking along the same lines that, yeah. yeah it's going to take me i know how many years i, I developed you know devoted to heavy lifting it's, it's going to take me that long i just maybe
1: yeah
0: yeah yeah, but it's just—it's just a matter of perspective. Like, you just have to look at it from this perspective. You just have to say, okay, you know, what—what what am I willing to do? What do I want to do? Right? Like, for you to—for you to—for you to become a marathon runner at this point in your life. I mean, just look, look, yeah. use that perspective, though. It's like—it's nah. like that's a total change in attitude. That's a total change of in time investment. Right. Yeah. But but again, I I, I think that because certain things go really real well really quickly that people underestimate what they need to invest. I don't know if I answered your question or not, to be honest with you, I don't know. No, you,
4: you did. I got I mean, on a little the soapbox there. I was thinking, yeah. It's basically where I was thinking. I mean, it, 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 it's never easy. It's like taking somebody that weighs 300 pounds and trying to bring down to 200. Yeah. So you gotta be willing to make the time to make yeah. the change. I mean, all verticals seem to be the same.
0: Yeah. We good? Awesome.